Good afternoon and welcome to the third edition of Nervous State. So what has happened in the two months since we were with you last? Well, the Debenham workers, who we featured, are still on strike. We went out of and back into lockdown. The solidarity of the early days of the pandemic is slowly turning into division and blame, with so-called young people often singled out. Meanwhile, the summer passes us by and we can't really remember what happened. Feels like we're all in a bit of a collective fugue state. So this month, we're going to see if we can make a little bit of sense out of it all. Thanks so much to Dublin Digital Radio for hosting this show. If you don't already, you can support them on Patreon. You can hit us up on Twitter and let us know what you think. Our handle is at nervous underscore state. On this month's show, we chat with Stephanie Costello from the Dublin Enquirer about some of their top stories this month. Ellie Phelan talks to Aoife Nessa Francis about the effects the pandemic has on her creativity moving to the west of Ireland and her latest album, The Land of No Junction. Meanwhile, the tentacles of Nervous State spread out to Leitrim, where Seán Cowman explores the effects of commercial forestry with sound artist Natalia Bayliss and Sean McLaughlin from the Save Leitrim campaign. Ashling Micklethwaite talks to Ashling Hederman, Michelle Connolly and Juliana Sassi from the Community Action Tenants Union a.k.a. Katu, about why they started a union, the work they have been doing, and how you can get involved. Emerging far-right activism in Ireland, like these anti-mask protests, has us thinking, when does balanced coverage become enabling misinformation? Patrick McCusker teases out this issue with our panellists, Aurelian Mondon, Gavin Titley, and Eugenia Sayapera. EVA International is an art exhibition that runs every two years in Limerick. The guest programme this year, Little Did They Know, is curated by Merv Elverin and seeks to address ideas of land and its contested values in the context of Ireland today. They also commissioned four platform projects that explore ideas of environmentalism, land use and housing activism. One of these is a film by Emer Walsh called The Land Question, where the fuck am I supposed to have sex? Katrina Devery chats to both Merv and Emer in our art focus. And first up, it's Stephanie Costello from the Dublin Enquirer. Hi, so I'm joined here by Stephanie Costello from Dublin Enquirer to catch up on some interesting stories that have appeared in Dublin Enquirer in the last month. So, hi Stephanie, how are you? Good, yeah, good. A little bit cold today. Everything is kind of freezing up, but all good. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I'm going to start with one by Alicia Nealon. Um, that's called, In Some Homeless Hostels, A Strict No Talking Rule is Enforced. Um, I can give you a little rundown of the story if you'd like. Yeah, please. That'd be great. So this is a story by Alicia. So she's looking at some of the rules that govern privately run homeless accommodation in the city centre currently. So Alicia was talking to this uh, woman called Asha Iqbal. Now, Asha lost her job during the pandemic um, and ran into some personal issues 
with her roommate in rented accommodation, which essentially meant that she had to move out and present as homeless during COVID-19. So upon entering this privately run emergency accommodation, she was handed a list of rules to abide by for the duration of her stay. So one of the rules um, that are currently in place in these privately run um, emergency accommodations is a no talking rule. Um, which basically means that people aren't allowed to stop for a chat on the stairs, in the kitchen, just not allowed to talk to each other whatsoever. Um, Iqbal was basically saying to Leisha that um, a young woman would discuss her death, mention her name, no cards, no flowers, um, and it was actually the second death that had happened in that particular accommodation um, from the time that she moved in there. Now, I will say Iqbal didn't want to mention the name of the accommodation that she was actually living in. Um, okay. And I can kind of get into why um, in, in, in a minute, because it's all kind of wraps up in the same kind of idea of, I suppose, the precarity of a lot of these privately run emergency accommodation facilities in Dublin and, and, and the rules, I suppose, as well. Um, sure. So Will Cummings, who's an advocacy worker for the inner city health and homeless, he said that, you know, a number of his clients have basically said the same, that he said that he's heard of it in at least nine other um, hostels around Dublin. And that also it seems to be a rule, um, strangely enough, that is only in women only hostels um, really? is what he's basically heard. Um, yeah, which yeah, he said it's especially prevalent, essentially, in women-only hostels for, for whatever reason. So, you know, he said that he thinks that this, you know, essentially infringes on people's human rights. Um, if you kind of have a look at the UN, you know, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it includes the freedom of expression and the right of peaceful assembly, which essentially um, these, you could you could say that these people aren't actually allowed to do. Um he also kind of said that, you know, the rules were in place pre-COVID, so they've been existing for quite a long time. Um, so on top of that rule, you know, there's other rules like you're only allowed to have two bags with you. So, you know, Iqbal was saying, if you find yourself in a situation where you suddenly become homeless, you've been living in rented accommodation and, and you, you know, you have more than two bags. So she had to throw away a lot of her stuff, basically. Um, she said that, you know, it felt like she was living in a modern day poor house, essentially. All her belongings, throw away her belongings. Yeah, um, and awful. also they're not allowed to cook for themselves. Yeah, so, you know, she would have been a chef prior to entering the emergency accommodation. So again, you know, like we were saying, I think before we were recording, there's some similarities or echoes of almost direct provision from this because again, here we're seeing that these homeless people aren't also allowed to cook for themselves. So she would say that she has some allergies and, you know, she's trying to look after her health, but it's just kind of whatever you get is what you get. Um, there have been some questions regarding where these rules have originated from. On page one and two of the rules that we've seen, it does mention Dublin City Council. So, you know, we reached out to Dublin City Council um, and the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive, which for people that don't know, is basically just DCC, that, the, the Homeless Service in DCC. Okay. They said they didn't, they basically didn't send them out. They would never do that. Um, they'd never tell people not to talk to each other. Um, they were not issued by the council and are not in operation of emergency accommodation facilities, but they didn't respond to queries as to if the no speaking rule, you know, infringes on people's human rights. Um, 
So another important issue, which is what I was kind of saying earlier about, you know, Iqbal not wanting to say where she was staying, is that a lot of these places are run by night on night basis. And essentially what that means is that um, private accommodation, um, which is essentially for profit, homeless accommodation, you can be kicked out at any time and you don't have to have a reason. They don't have to have a reason for kicking you out. So there have been reports that we've heard that a lot of people are quite unwilling to come out and criticise where they where they live or criticise the facilities really in any way, shape or form for fear of, of essentially being kicked out. Sure. Um, so people are hesitant to make complaints and then, you know, the DRHG are saying, we've not received any complaints about this. So it, it's sort of like this chasm, I suppose, of, of what we're hearing that's happening and, and potentially what, yeah, is happening. Yeah, so um, the next story that um, I kind of wanted to talk about this month is from Shamim Malekmian, um, and it's some undocumented migrant women are reluctant to report abusive partners for fear of deportation. Um, so Shamim is actually new to the Inquirer. She's our new immigration reporter. Um, we basically did an outreach uh, last month where we did kind of a reader and we asked all our readers essentially um, to help us choose a beat. So immigration won overwhelmingly. So now we have Shamim. But essentially, yeah, story. Um, so Shamim basically met this woman um, called Hamda Ajmel. Um, who came to Ireland from Pakistan six years ago. So she's a PhD student in machine learning at NUIG. Um, and yeah, she moved here six years ago and just essentially felt a little bit homesick. So in 2017, she decided to set up a Facebook group to find and connect with other Pakistani women in Ireland. But um, she kind of noticed a, a worrying trend, essentially, after setting up the group, you know, it was a, a kind of originally set up to sort of share recipes and family tips, things like that. But she kind of found that more and more uh, women were actually using it to vent about their abusive husbands. Okay. So some of these women uh, were undocumented um, and they did fear, you know, deportation um, and it did stop them essentially from, from reporting it. But, you know, Ajmel said that she always encouraged women who came and shared their story to go to the police essentially um, and just, you know, report what was happening. But after the findings of a dissertation that was written by a senior member of Angardi Shiakana um, was published in the Irish Times last month, she's basically saying she's not so sure. So essentially, David McInerney, um, who is a senior, senior, you know, guard in Angardi Shiakana. He was the head of the National Diversity Unit from 2001 to 2019, um, essentially wrote his PhD thesis um, and found in his thesis that Gardi have an unwritten policy of referring suspected illegal immigrants who are victims of or witness to a crime to the Immigration Bureau after the investigation is closed. Okay. So essentially, if you're, you know, illegally, yeah, so if you're illegally here and something happens to you or you witness something happening, um, for the duration of the case, you're safe. But yep. what McInerney found um, was that there was an unwritten rule that these people would be referred essentially to the um, Immigration Bureau. So um, Shamim spoke actually with a Pakistani woman um, who was afraid to go on the record um, because she is currently um, fears, you know, she's, she's undocumented and she has left her husband. 
Um, and she was basically saying that, you know, she received a lot of abuse at the hands of her husband. He hit her, uh, did drugs, um, withheld food and money from her, essentially. Um, the problem was that, you know, she came over here in a stamp three visa, which meant that she's a de facto partner. So her husband was allowed to work. She was allowed to live in the country legally, but not allowed to work. Um, and right. as part of, I guess, the, the abuse, the husband essentially um, didn't allow her to renew her visa. So this woman has become undocumented through no fault of her own. Um, it was sort of just another, um, I guess, step in terms of, you know, what um, Ajmal says is that it's actually not uncommon that that would happen, you know, in, in abusive relationships with, with, with migrant women. So um, the woman is now undocumented and um, actually has left the husband. Um, but is sort of living very precariously at the moment. Um, so, you know, a spokesperson for the Department of Justice said that they they do not ask on Gardaí Síochána to report undocumented immigrants who are the victim of a crime uh, to the guards. Um, but also, and also, sorry, on Gardaí Síochána have like very much so distanced themselves from the you know report and the findings of this. They've said this is not official Gardaí. Um, it's not an internal report. Um, but I suppose there are questions in terms of, of that, considering how senior, you know, a member of Angarda Shiakana this guy is. He's still with Angarda Shiakana. So um, Catherine Cosgrave of the Immigrant Council of Ireland said she's never experienced this. She's, but just because she's not seen this happen before, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, there are actually, you know, guidelines issued by the Department of Justice that say, you know, women who have an immigration status that is reliant on an abusive husband that there are mechanisms in place for them to okay. um you know apply independently but um i suppose ajmal is just kind of saying that you know many women are still quite fearful they might have a distrust in this in general so doing that might not be an option for for a lot of them um, so she's in the midst, essentially, of starting a project in correlation with the Immigrant Council to, I hope, maybe bridge this kind of gap. But yeah. it's it's definitely a tricky situation, um, especially yeah, if you're, sure. you know, un undocumented. And really important, I think, that we have stories and we're able to tell stories like this, you know, to actually hear about these kind of things that are happening. Um, it remains to really be seen what um, is really going on in the guards, whether or not it's it's happening or not but it's just i guess something that we'll keep our eye on as well and yeah. just yeah follow up with yeah for sure thanks very much stephanie for that hit us up on twitter at nervous date let us know what you think next up ellie Phelan chats musician Nessa francis whose album the land of no junction was released this year to high acclaim I'm here with Aoife Nessa Francis and our good friend Zoom, and it is both our first time with audio interviews, so shout out to Dublin Lockdown. Aoife released her ethereal debut album, Land of No Junction, earlier this year, and it has received widespread critical acclaim. One of the tracks that really stands out to me from Land of No Junction is Geranium. Geranium is a hauntingly beautiful ode to our uncle and granny, who have now passed away. I hope you enjoy.
What is your least favorite aspect of most interviews you've done so far? I I don't like when questions get too personal or something because I feel like I maybe can be too open. <laughs> um, and yeah, I find it really difficult to talk about myself, but that's just I guess something that I I'm learning and working on. I'm not I guess I'm just not very used to interviews, so I don't have a lot of experience. And uh, what have you been up to lately in all this madness? Yeah, I've, so I've been working on music the past two weeks. I, I was in Kerry, um, actually, when you were there. <laughs> where I was recording. But before the madness, like, I feel like I've only, I found, like, you know, during March when everything started really getting quite crazy and, and in the months following, I, I became like, you know, everyone was being so, sounded like everyone was being so productive and everything. And I, I just sort of lost the plot and I did everything else except create things, which I feel in a way was sort of really good for me. Uh, I only felt like when, when the restrictions started easing, then I feel like I was able to relax a little bit and take in everything that happened, you know, like all the nature and the solitude that I experienced. I was able to sort of take with me and then and then and then I recorded somehow I don't know how but yeah how do you feel the pandemic has impacted your work about recording your energy performing financially etc it's I mean it's it's hugely affected me um, and everyone else creatively I think it's been really it's been good I've I feel like I sort of when I released my album this year I like maybe wasn't psychologically prepared for everything that was sort of was happening after it like touring and like you know there's just you know loads of shows booked and I was really excited to play them but then everything got cancelled obviously and I think it just I think in a way it was really good for me because I yeah I wasn't ready um to to be that busy I think I think I needed time to sort of understand exactly what was happening for me and it's given me sort of a breather to consider myself and I I'm I'm very grateful for that I don't, I don't know if I would have been able, like, because I've written all these new songs and I've been working on stuff anyway, but I, I was able to, yeah, just sort of like, I feel like I've got a really bad routine with creativity and I feel like I've sort of developed that during the pandemic. Um, so that like, from a creative perspective, it's been really amazing. And then obviously financially, it's been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have like a particular like creative routine 
since the pandemic? Well, in the past couple of weeks, yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I was getting up um, first thing in the morning. Like I was, I know, I realized that my body clock really needed, it was sort of like I'd been getting up late and stuff um, before that for various reasons. And I started going to bed really early and getting up at like 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. That was just like naturally. And I was, I was like trying to stay away from the internet and like social media and stuff. So I was like, not looking at my phone purposefully like before going to bed and after waking up and I just found my dreams became like a really really powerful and very strong and I, I was able they were I was able to write them in like a lot of detail everything was really intense and and from that I started like getting up and immediately just like going to a, a room where nobody could hear me and playing and writing and I wrote loads of songs this way and it was really like it was it was it was really great because that time in the morning like there's no wait from the day ahead and um, so I would do that and then I would like later on would go back and sort of listen to things that I'd written or come up with and just write I was just right doing a lot of writing as well um, and then oh. the rest of the day would just sort of be making food and stuff and how did you find the difference between recording that and recording in the rural countryside of the kingdom? <laughs> uh, well, I guess I've, I'm a real, con- I've been really converted now because I've, I've sort of accidentally moved to the west of Ireland and I just don't want to be in Dublin anymore. Um, I just love being in the countryside and I kind of wanted to take that energy with me into the recording so it didn't really make sense. Like, I feel like, you know, when you go, when you're recording in a place where the whole band and, you know, like everyone is sort of together, you really get lost in the experience like we did when we went to Kerry. And I, it's just more immersive or something because you're not like, you know, obviously you're not con- con- constantly working, but like, wor- like when you do can be sort of any time. So, um, and yeah, you're all together. So it, it it was just like a very magical experience being able to do that. I, I like it being, I like, I liked that it felt more casual and um, than like the pressure of going to a studio or something, even though it was kind of the same thing because all of the same stuff was there, all the like, equipment. So you were saying that a lot of, for this album comes from dreams and was that always the case with your last album or is that more so with this um, one? I feel like it's something that has, yeah, always been present in my song writing but maybe unintentionally um this time I feel like it was more I don't know I mean I, I'm still writing like a lot of the lyrics and stuff I have not finished um I've been do, I've been sort of like record like recording and leaving everything very loose with lyrically um and I think I'll probably have to like come back to it but yeah like sorry to answer your question um I think it is all very heavily in you know lots of dreams lots of songs uh that have connected to dreams that i've had like vivid dreams how have you found uh if at all online platforms have impacted you both in your work as a musician and as a consumer of music on a personal level it's been like amazing that people have been able to like sort of stay connected um and like you know how live streaming and stuff has become so prevalent and everyone's doing it and it's kind of, it's I think it's pretty cool it's like I miss playing real gigs <laughs> I can't lie about that but I've I've enjoyed watching like people's live streams and stuff and it's very intimate and someone is like performing somewhere 
from their home or where, wherever it might be. And then I also think that like people are probably listening to music a lot more now than they would have before. Like I, I feel like it's everything has sort of been reinvented in a really I think a positive way. I've listened to more music, even just I've I've had such an amazing time. Whereas I feel like I sort of lost myself a little bit for a little while there, and like just wasn't really able to listen to music. So I just I sort of feel like I developed this like teenage naivety and like interest. <laughs> towards music again and it was really fun rediscovering mm. things and discovering new things um with the evolution of vinyl to tape to cd and the likes of spotify and youtube what mode of listening is most preferable to you and why i think you kind of answered it back there but um in all of those mediums yeah i mean i love listening to vinyl um i just don't like my my record player is is uh not set up at the moment because i've been moving all over the place um well, not like moving all over the place. I've just moved house <laughs> once. I've been staying pretty put, like not moving around during COVID times. I've I've kind of enjoyed like downloading like albums um, and like you know listening to th- like full like you know putting it on my on my phone and like just listening to that. I've also um, one thing I've really enjoyed has been listening to CDs in my car. I have like been listening to like one Jim Sullivan album kind of all the time because it's the only, like it was like the only CD that I wanted to listen to that was in my car. Is that UFO? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I've been yeah. It's been really nice. Like oh, like when you I get in the car and it's just like become my road my road CD. I listen to it over and over and over again. <laughs> it's such a good album. What's yeah. your favorite track on it? Um. I mean, I love UFO. I love Plain as Your Eyes Can See. I love So Natural as well. But did, did you ever read up about the conspiracy theories around Jim Sullivan in that album? Like, d- he disappeared, didn't he? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I've read any conspiracies, but I just know that he, like, he disappeared after it was, like, he, he his, like, guitar and bag was found in, like, a motel, and he was gone. As well as um, a bottle of whiskey in his hotel room as well. <laughs> Yeah, cause, especially because the album is called UFO. I don't know, I feel like he knew something that we didn't and then he disappeared. Da, 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 da. Yeah, he, he seemed like a cool guy. What is your thought process when writing? Like, um, does what you write always flow out of songs that already have like a tune in place? Or just sometimes poetry becomes song? Yeah, I I feel like I've had many different experiences and many like kind of you know I've been like oh I this this is sort of how I write and then I'll write something else and it will be like made in a completely different way. I kind of tend to play chords and sing almost nonsense and in in like with a you know like a melody and I'll find the the bones of a of a song. And like that moment is always really special because that's like, you know, like the beginning. And then and th- then there will be words that ha- will like stand out to me from what I've been singing with the nonsense. Um, the nonsense uh, sort of becomes something. And I'll fi- I, I guess I sort of find a song within that. And then there's al- like there's always some meaning that that's there already, like it's already decided. And then I sort of go with that. But then sometimes I'll be like, this song is about this. I don't know why, but it is. And then it will be taken somewhere. Has there been a core period in your life where there has been a lot of creative content? I feel like now feels pretty creative for me. 
I think I, I was feeling quite like insecure or something after releasing an album um, of music that took so long to make. And, and then it was sort of just like, oh, what do I do now? <laughs> like, will I ever be able, like, you know, because I've, I've have loads of ideas, but I was just like, will I ever be able to finish the song again? And was feeling quite doubtful and insecure about it. And then I spoke with a friend of mine who is also a songwriter and they gave me advice on when you're writing, you sort of need to, like, if you're, you know, you feel that presence of like some something like watching you or sort of judging you, you need to like kind of stop and ask them to leave and like kind of like almost physically feel that presence like leaving the room and then you can continue then. And I feel like that was actually really useful for me because just felt like I was I don't know like there was something else there with me that wasn't helping I had to like something so yeah something clicked and I've, I just feel like I, I've, I've got a lot, lot of stuff flowing at the moment and it feels really good and I don't really know why and I'm sure it will stop at some point and then start again that's just the nature <laughs> of it great really happy that you have all of that creative flow going at the moment is, is there a, a genre kind of difference between this and the last album it's a uh, lockdown lockdown blues no I'm, I'm <laughs> I feel like it's it's like there's some so there's something maybe continuing forward from the last one but it feels it feels very different I don't know it's in such early days it could be it could become anything it could become a reggae album <laughs> what is your experience um being in the Irish music scene as a woman considering it's often quite like male dominated I don't know I feel like for me it's been pretty positive like I've had incredible like there's been incredibly kind supportive people but like I mean I know it's not necessarily the case and there's you know like the Irish music scene is is very male oriented for me I've I've had a pretty good experience so far except for maybe like sound engineers being a bit condescending because I'm a woman that's always annoying but like it doesn't really matter that's sort of the worst the worst part (laughs) (laughs) What does the future hold for this album? And do you feel like it will be a long process like the last one? I kind of don't think it will. Everything's been happening really naturally. And like, I feel like it it won't take as long. I feel more clear about my, my path and my purpose or something. So I feel like it won't take as long because, like, I mean, I'm still figuring stuff out, but this feels like it's all happening very naturally. And yeah, I'm at, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in a rush either because I mean the world is in such a crazy place but I'm I'm really really enjoying this process like it's it feels so fun. Do you find a bit you're more relaxed when doing this album? I kind of trust myself a bit more I don't know if that's a good thing or not but a bit more faith in myself I think I had I had very little confidence um, I just didn't really believe in myself and I still have moments like that but there's a there's more of a there's I feel more certain about certain things. So I, I don't know. I really don't know what that means. Like that, it could be terrible. It's not even technically an album yet. Maybe I should put that in there. That like, I didn't really intend on recording an album. I just wanted to record the music that I'd written, and if it happened to be good, I would maybe put it in, into an album. So it's like maybe an album. I think it is an album. It wasn't. I wasn't sure if it was or not. It was just. I just needed some means to express myself uh, because things have been quite terrible for the past few months. And it felt like the right thing to do. And it, I think it was. <laughs> so we okay. shall see. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> Next, Cian Cowman talks to Natalia Bayliss and Sean McLaughlin from the Save Leitrim campaign about what it's like to live surrounded by forestry, the differences between forestry and forest, 
and the government's new forestry appeals bill. I'm Sian. I'm your host for this segment of Nervous State, focusing on monoculture Sitka spruce forestry and the government's proposed forestry appeals bill. We're joined by two grassroots campaigners who live in Leitrim, one of the counties most affected by monoculture forestry in Ireland. Natalia Bayless is a sound artist who lives surrounded by monoculture Sitka spruce on all sides. Sean McLaughlin is from Ahavas Parish, County Leitrim, a heavily afforested area, and he is a member of the campaign group Save Leitrim. You're very welcome to Nervous State, Natalia and Sean. Hello. Thank you. So before we start with the interview, I'd just like to give a little bit of background on the new appeals bill currently making its way through government. In July 2020, the new Minister for State in the Department of Food, Agriculture and the Marine, Pippa Hackett, proposed the Draft Agriculture Appeals Bill 2020. The bill would introduce fees and other potential barriers for people appealing decisions relating to forestry projects. One of the principal tools that local groups affected by monoculture forestry have at their disposal to challenge these projects is the right of appeal. Currently, there is a backlog of appeals that has stymied the forestry industry and prompted industry criticism of groups like Save Leitrim. While the department has not said openly that pressure from the forestry industry is the reason for the proposed forestry appeals bill, it's pretty obvious to anyone following the story that there is a direct connection. When Pippa Hackett was appointed to the forestry portfolio in the department, Forestry Industries Ireland welcomed the return of the sector's representation back to the government cabinet table. This bill could also set a precedent in other areas. According to Fossil Fuel Campaign Group, not here, not anywhere, this bill could be used as a precedent for future legislation which would apply the same restrictions to appeals around other issues like liquefied natural gas terminals or offshore drilling for oil and gas. So this bill won't just affect those campaigning against monoculture forestry. Before we get into that some more, I'd like to hear a bit from both of you about what it's like to live surrounded by this kind of forestry. Maybe let's start with you, Natalia. Sure. Um, So I, as you said, I live uh, surrounded by commercial forestry on four sides. Um, When we moved here, the trees were quite small and we didn't really take much notice of them. And over the years, the trees grew quickly and very tall and became quite um, sort of started growing onto our land. The branches started growing in um, onto our fields. And we really started uh, noticing the effects of commercial forestry when um, the trees started falling onto our land, falling onto our road, um, falling onto the electrical wires, um, which would bring them down and the electrical wires would then fall into our driveway. Um, At the time, we didn't know who owned the forestry uh, or who owned all the land around us. And so we didn't know who to contact. But um, yeah, since then, it's been a big learning curve. There's just so much to know about it and so much to find out. And it's all it's all pretty bleak. When they were cutting right next to the house, it was um, when they were doing it last time, they started uh, four in the morning. The trucks would come sometimes and you could just hear them droning um, in the distance and the sound of it is just uh, they cut the tree, they pick up these huge two-ton trees and then just drop them on the ground. So everything shakes. So the house shakes. So with each each tree cut, the house would shake. And all you could hear was the sound of the reversing, the beep, beep, beep of the forestry trucks constantly. So you can't really sleep because when you're trying to go to bed, there could still be out there cutting. So you're hearing that beep, beep, beep in your waking life. And then you're trying to sleep, but all you can hear is the beep, beep, beep. But the worst part of all is just seeing the destruction to... The ecology around here and what's left behind and the animals 
that are affected by it that uh, live on the edges of the forests. And yeah. Could you just, I'm just trying to imagine like how listeners could visualize this. Could you just give a little picture? Like what does it look like when one of these areas of forestry has been clear cut? It just kind of looks like a bomb has come and hit it. It just looks like everything, you know, they leave behind all the branches and they leave behind logs and they just, it looks, the soil is upturned and the soil is compacted quite badly. So and there's certain areas they can't replant now because they've damaged the soil so badly. Um, and then the winter comes. And so then the rain comes. And after the clear fell, there's just flooding everywhere. And you just see, you know, trees getting knocked over from the flooding that are nowhere near forestry. Um, just, uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite shocking. It's quite shocking because of the ecological damage, but it's also quite shocking um, just from an emotional point of view. You can't really get away from it once it's happening. Thank you for that. So, Sean, um, you've told me before about some of the long-term impacts on forestry on the county that you've been noticing in Ahavas since the 70s, such as outward migration and the resulting closure of local services. Can you tell us a bit about that? I've been active for 30 years against forestry, but there wasn't a lot of support and the damage was done before people could really see the damage that it was doing to our parish and our county. And at the present time, roughly 20% of County Leitrim is planted. And the same goes for most of the parishes. And it has decimated rural life in, in County Leitrim because every farm that is bought is bought by outside interests. And um, all the services have, our schools are suffering, our um, sporting clubs are suffering. Um, There are many facets to the damage that forestry is doing within our parish and within our county. Do you believe that forestry has had an impact on young people migrating away from the county or away from Ahavas Parish? Yes, I have, because forestry is supported by Irish taxpayers' money to the tune of about €4,500 per acre over a 15-year period. The premium lasts for 15 years. And they also get about 3000 of establishment grants. But no Leitrim farmers have taken up this because... They don't want to plant Leitrim land with Sitka spruce. They want to farm their land, their livestock farmers. And when we do done a study of the parishes around here, we we discovered that that what government and forestry industry were telling us was not truthful. And we discovered that eighty five percent of uh, the of the parish that was planted was owned by outside interests and only 15% were owned by local people farmers can compete you know our neighbor he tried to buy a field next to him so they wouldn't plant it but the these the companies have way more money to outbid um any farmer and so young farmers can't really afford to buy farms anymore farmers can't expand and any industry that can't expand will will die. 
and some farms are completely surrounded by forestry and they they just cannot improve their holdings or increase the money they take in per year they don't they don't have the ability and as i said the forestry companies that that plant our parish and our county are getting a bonus of four and a half thousand per acre to plant it but the next door farmer he's not getting anything and that money from the forestry companies local farmers spend money locally they support local businesses they support shops they go to the pub they take their kids to local activities but the forestry companies no one's from around here very very few and the money is all going into pension funds many of which are pension funds from abroad canadian teachers pension funds so Irish taxpayers money going to this industry where the money is being sent away and not being spent in local communities so then the shops close and beyond that they like to try to call forestry forests now the signs that have come up now recently say forest operations ahead but it's not forests and this is what people have to understand that maybe aren't used to what they're seeing is a forest is a biodiverse area that has upper canopies and lower canopies and food for animals and diversity and mushrooms and everything forests help clean our air forests help clean our oceans the reason a lot of these carbon tax breaks are given to forestry is because it's supposed to be for something that helps capture carbon out of the air and store it. But forestry is nothing like a forest. It's a commercial industry, simply 100% for profit, nothing else. They don't know how many rotations of sicka they can plant before the soil is spent. They think maybe it's three rotations before the soil is just completely depleted of all the nutrients because there's nothing else contributing to that forest floor, to that humus that you need to make it grow and keep things going. Thank you for that. So what I'm hearing is it's, it's a heavily subsidized industry, which is pushing out local farms and therefore pushing people to migrate. Local services are being decimated and it's falsely greenwashed as something that is environmentally friendly when in actual fact it's a monoculture that's devastating the soil and leaving it unusable. So I wanted to ask you both about the ways that you're organizing to resist this model of monoculture forestry and put forward a better way. And Natalia, I know that you've been working on a research and music project called Whose Woods These Are, and also challenging the forestry company that manages the forestry surrounding your home. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that work? The challenges that we've been putting to the forestry company mostly have to do with when they're clear felling. They came back in June this year to start to try clear felling again, um, which is... It goes against the European Birds Directive, which says you, because of fledglings and nesting, you can't cut down trees except in an emergency situation between March and August. So we just wrote to everybody that we could to try to get them to stop clear felling until September. And we were successful, thankfully. Like, we have been successful. You just have to write to everyone. The forestry company just writes back and goes, well, what we're doing is fine. So just and all they say to you is go get government policy change, which is what Sean's trying to do with Save Leitrim. Yeah, Save Leitrim, we've been we've set up about three years ago, 14 people doing voluntary work. And we decided to appeal against all for the forestry planting licenses in the beginning. But against all uh, clear felling and roads because in the northern part of County Leithstrom, Quilsha have vast forestry there and 
they are clear felling them now because they're 30 years planted and uh, the locals there were onto us that they were doing irreparable damage to the roads and the roads weren't being repaired when all those 40 ton lorries were coming out day in day out so we have appealed against that the appeals are first of all uh, a notice goes up and it goes out on a website and we follow that up and we appeal against the the, the planting of it uh, all has been stopped because there is they say there is a backlog of appeals because other counties now are setting up uh, save uh, save the counties whether it's Kerry or Cavan and others are joining in and they are all putting in appeals against against forestry and uh, policy in its present state and that is good and that uh, long may that continue because this thing of forestation without without planning and in and in the right places we seen the landslide in county leitrim where um somebody planted uh, 300 acres on on mountain bog and uh, everything came sliding down the mountain with with one heavy night's rain and um, lucky that people weren't killed in their houses on that night and um, they're trying to take it away that it it wasn't because of the forestry but it really was because of the forestry and Sitka spruce planted in the wrong place. So the only recourse that a group like Save Leitrim or somebody who's going to have a plantation put beside them, the only recourse that they have to challenge that is through the appeal system. So now Pippa Hackett wants to introduce these um, fees for the appeals. Like, What kind of impact would that have on Save Leitrim and other, other groups like you? We as a group uh, cannot understand Pippa Hackett's position as um, junior minister in, in, in the government and a green minister to to give back in if it happens to the forestry uh, lobby that is there, a, it is totally wrong. She should be on the side of Save Leitrim, put policies in order that proper forestation is put in as i say we are at 20 percent in leitrim every farm in ireland has a piece of suitable ground i'm sure in most of it that a hectare or a few hectares of proper forestry could be planted but speaking from where i'm speaking leitrim at 20 percent has enough of of plantations it's as far as the eye can see, you look around and everywhere you look, there's Sitka. And um, in March, within a kilometer, within about a kilometer and a half of here, they were mounding ground to plant a new plantation, planting in new trees and clear felling. And that's just all within like one kilometer of where I am. And we're, we're not that far from Carrick. We're in a pretty populated spot and it's just, it's everywhere. It's just and it's, it's all over Ireland as well. It's, if, if they can't do it here, they're going to come other places. Thank you both very much. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we, before we finish up? You hear a lot of people saying plant leitrim, what else is it good for? But especially now, so many people are moving back here. You know, I just talked to someone who lives in Manor Hamilton and five of her friends, she's in her 30s, have recently moved home. People want to move back to rural Ireland and people want to move here and have families here. Once land is given over to forestry, it, there's no there's no moving anyone into it after that it's just forestry then and really nice houses are just getting surrounded and nobody's going to live in them anymore and people want to move to rural places so we just need to look at a future where we actually 
have communities and have communities that have say and influence over ecologically what happens around them rather than having somebody who does has no understanding of what's happening in those communities. Well, thank you both so much for all the work that you're doing to highlight these issues and to continue to fight for rural communities to be able to have um, a future. And thank you so much for sharing your experiences and knowledge with us. Thanks, thank Jan. You. Thanks thank very much. You. Next up, Ashling Mickeltwaite and Katu. It's no surprise when we say the housing crisis in Ireland is and has been one of the most prominent problems within our society. There aren't many people who haven't been affected by rising rents, evictions, precarious living situations, overcrowding, homelessness, discrimination, lack of public housing, lack of representation and services, and a total disregard towards making any significant changes to better this by previous and current governments. There have been a number of campaigns over the years by housing activists and groups to fight for change in this system, but we are still faced with the same issues worsened by the ongoing pandemic and affecting the most vulnerable in our society the most. While landlords seem to be getting away with doing whatever they want and people are in a constant state of fear in regards to their living situations. Late last year, CATU, Community Action Tenants Union, was launched as an effort to tackle this. I'm joined today by Ashton Hederman, who is on the CATU Board of Directors, as well as the National Committee for CATU and, and was one of the key figures in organising the Tenants Union to be set up. Also, Michelle Connolly, who has been involved in organising around housing issues for a number of years and is, on the, member, is the Member Defence Officer for the Mountjoy Dorset Street Cashew branch in Dublin 1. And finally, Juliana Sassi, also a prominent housing activist involved with the Brazilian left frontier in Dublin and a member of Cashew based in Finglas. We, we are going to discuss why there is a need for a tenants union, how it is structured on a national level with information about branches and local campaigns and basically all things catchy. So thanks for joining me um, to talk about this. And I'm gonna start with a question for Ashling. As you said, you've been involved with housing for six years um, and have been involved with catchy from the get-go. So why did you feel like the formation of a tenants union was the next, the next action to take in regards to organizing around housing? So the last six years being involved in grassroots organizing and trying to get people that are affected to have their voices here to be involved. Um, it was quite good to learn how to organize on the ground. It was good to reach out to people and see what the actual issues were and what the struggles were um, and getting to know the structures of the system. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found was that it wasn't, it wasn't effective in keeping people involved because they didn't feel they had ownership and it also brought in an awful lot just activism um, and activists and it didn't branch out to those that were actually really affected to get involved and if they did get involved they only stayed for a little while they didn't have much ownership um, within groups and within kind of the grassroots um, activism that happens. Okay um, and so how does the tenants union work what, what is the structure on a national level? So the CATU, when we came together, we decided that we would, um, we wanted to have an organisation where the members had ownership of the organisation. Um, and what we said, what we really believed in was that it had to have um, oversight, legal oversight and accountability. Yeah. When we were organising on the ground, we didn't actually have that. What we did have, um, we couldn't take money in and um, we couldn't resource the kind of actions that were happening we couldn't actually yeah. help the members that way 
So when we were setting up CAT2, we felt that the legal standing and the accountability for any funding that was coming in was really important. So we decided that we would set up a tenancy union um, to reach out to those as well that would not, not normally get involved in activism yeah. because it's like a different kind of level. It's more um, united with other people with the same struggles where with the activism was just activists. The structure of CATU would be that there's a board of directors that oversee the legal um, elements of the organisation. Okay. And then we would have um, the national board, which would consist of like communications, membership, um, education and training, um, employment um, and stuff like that. And the, they meet, we meet every three weeks and we discuss kind of what's happening in the organisation, what can we do better, we have targets. Um, it's a lot more structured in the way that we um, are set out to actually progress and grow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so and then after that, then it breaks down into um, local committees. Mm-hmm. And each local committee must have at least 10 to 15 members before launching in the community. Mm-hmm. And then once they get to 80 members, then it becomes a branch. Okay. Um, so to understand from a branch perspective, um, Michelle, as I mentioned, you're on the committee for the Mountjoy Dostetri branch. Um, can you explain a bit about how the branch started <clears throat> and what it entails and what basically branches do on the ground in terms of organising and supporting their members? First off, I think the Mountjoy Square, I'm Mountjoy Square Dorset Street branch, that's kind of the area I'm in. So it's mostly Dublin 1, a little bit of that is technically Dublin 7. Okay. Um, so that branch had a slightly different um, formation to maybe most of the other branches because when Katu was initially um, forming, like so Ashling and the other people who, who set up the kind of legal entity of Katu, um, they were doing some door knocking around this area um, for I think a few months, was it Ashling? Like, yeah, like it was going on for a few months and when there was like enough people who seemed like they wanted to form a committee um, it was it was uh, officially launched as as the branch the local branch so they're put to get they're they're put in contact with each other and they're given support by the national committee to you know meet organize figure out what their capacity is um, if they're if training is needed they they're offered training and when there's i think 15 people yeah when there's 15 people in your in your area who are joined up fully fully signed up members you can you can launch a group um, and when the group launches it elects a committee um, and the committee then are responsible for kind of day-to-day running so you know maybe the social media the email um, organizing events getting more people to actually join so recruitment and member defense which is what I do so that's you know if a member has an issue that's going on with their situ- with their housing situation or their kind of local community situation we'd be the first point of call for them to talk to um, and see what's actually going on and what can be done and then how we can work on that collectively with the rest of the of the group. Okay and you said um, about door knocking what would you feel has the response been from people when you've been knocking on doors and a lot of people are really enthusiastic and um, mm-hmm. some people are like all right that's weird <laughs> what's, what's in it for me or like how is that relevant to me but actually yeah. the majority of people who you meet especially if they're renting are yeah. like great I'm glad this is going on yeah and is it, is it just for 
people that are renting or would it be encouraged kind of for anybody in the community to join? So it's for anyone in the community who's not a landlord. That's the, yeah. the official one. It's a community union. So, I mean, that includes homeowners who um, want to basically be involved in their local community. We don't just do tenants issues. If whatever the, the branch or the membership of the branch wants to tackle, we'll tackle yeah. that. Um, Juliana, just to ask, um, as a member of CATU, what were your reasons for joining the Tenants Union to begin with? Yes, so in the beginning, I wasn't 100% uh, sure about uh, how would it be uh, a tenant union. I think I talked to Ashley in the beginning and she was saying how the idea was important and all. And I was telling her that I couldn't see uh, like uh, people paying for the union, joining the union. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know how it would work because I was coming from uh, with a Brazilian perspective yeah. in a context that like we just had a labor reform and to pay to be part of a union had just been uh, became like uh, official. So like the unions um, finances dropped by like 90%. So we had all this anti-union feeling going on in Brazil. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't see like how a tenant union is going to happen and all these kind of things. But uh, it comes a lot by knowing your community where you are, these kind of things. Yeah. And uh, Ashley had this as other people that uh, was in the Cato from the beginning. I was still a bit uh, skeptical, but uh, I start seeing that like, yes, there is some kind of sense of community is still in some neighborhoods in Ireland and still in some areas. And uh, of course, if you are part of this, if, you're, if you are born there and if you have friends in, in, in the area, you can say that you have a community. But as a migrant person, I didn't have a community. So all these ideas of community union on this neighborhood thing was distant from me. Yeah. So, but I got involved with like DCHA housing groups when like Brazilian people are being evicted and I could understand a little bit of the dynamics here in Ireland by working with um, the people here. And um, actually we had Catu uh, was in an anti-eviction action, I think it was in July and was a Brazilian person that was involved, it was a, a house uh, that was Brazilian people that was rented and I kind of new then yeah. and it was a very nice uh, resistance and many people from different branches or even sympathetic came together uh, and this kind of things I think is like that Katu is doing is very nice bringing people together and in this sense it was different from the other kind of groups before because before even with the CHA we had this mm, uh, support group where we are like listening to people's stories and trying to support them going through. But it still was some kind of service provision thing that we are like there helping people somehow as much as we didn't want. We are trying to like, uh, I don't like this word, but kind of empower, like giving people the tools to do the things. Yeah. But at the same time, we are in this. But with Katu, like everybody, it's a main, but everybody's equal and everybody fights together. So yeah. the people that we are supporting, they were more involved in the process. So like they were go they were going to the meetings they were doing the things themselves yeah. and I could see uh, in this process that like cat uh, was very important because uh, was uh, because first of all uh, they believe in people's power they believe that like people really have the strength to oppose this like capital in this landlords and all kind of things because we have the numbers and getting together and get organized you can do things yeah. 
I think this is a pretty interesting thing. And yeah, and Katu have offering as well these ways of with the trainings that uh, Ashley Michelle was saying as well. And yeah, yeah. This is very, that's why I joined okay. after a long yeah. time of reflecting. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Juliana. Um, so obviously, um, as well as all the challenges people were having before in terms of precarious living situations, um, COVID-19 has brought a whole other level of distress to people. Um, it seems like the situation might be bringing to light more so than ever the divide between those in power and regular people. Um, so do you think that this is kind of for, for anyone that wants to answer, um, do you think that there's more of an appetite for people to get involved with something like a tenants union now? Yeah, Michelle? Yeah, yeah. Um, it seems that way from talking to people out on the doors and out in the streets. Yeah, people are sick, sick of it and they're ready to do something and um, what Katu offers uh, or yeah, what Katu offers is, is a way to get involved that's very clear to do something. Like yeah. I've, you know, people know what a union does. Yeah. Um, it supports its members to, you know, collectively against, you know, a larger force. Yeah. So um, people know what that is. They're happy to, well, the people I've talked to um, are happy to that there's something being done and that it's accessible in a way that means you know you can put as much time into it as you want yeah you can just join if you're like renting and you don't really have a huge amount of time to give to it yeah um but you know it's there if you need it um i mean obviously it would be great the more engaged you are the better yeah um but the option is there to like you remember that's great you are helping to build this thing yeah yeah okay thanks michelle um so i think we mentioned before um about how kind of things are interlinked and you know how it's not just solely um about tenants and, and renting and housing situations so um there is the possibility to organize around other areas that affect communities which is a really positive thing um and just to to ask does the union provide or plan to provide extra training or information sessions um around organizing for its members so recently we employed our force education and training officer. Okay. Um, so we have our force employee that is um, going around each committee and stuff and offering training to the committees. Yeah. But we recently had a discussion on how we're going to train that. And it's going to be that each month he's going to do three trainings. And what like one would be um, community organizing, uh, membership, um, what a union is and how you can be involved in the union and stuff like that. Yeah. And what we um, are going to be implementing is that them trainers are going to be once a month yeah. um, and it's going to be sent around to all members. So any member can get involved, whether they're part of a committee or not. So the trainings are going to be broad enough for as many people that are members to get involved. Okay, that's brilliant. Um, and I'm, so I was speaking to like, people that are based in Dublin but it's important to kind of to take note that it's a nationwide um organization and there is branches being set up like as you said I think Michelle and Galway and um, Maynooth as well so um hopefully that'll Cork. continue and Cork, Cork as well yeah yeah um, don't forget them <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah so um yeah it's not just it's not just based in Dublin and hopefully we'll get to speak to people in future from other areas in Ireland as well um, and I think now, 
CATU has over 500 members, which is a huge number for, for such a short time. Um, it's really phenomenal. It seems like it's going from strength to strength. And um, I mean, I think we don't really have much more time, unfortunately, but I feel like we could probably talk about this for hours. So is there anything that you'd like to say to people about joining or getting involved with CATU in the future? Ashley? I just think that people should know that CATU is a community-based organisation, that we want to get as many people involved from the community that are from different backgrounds, because that way we can have a broad community of people that are affected by many issues, not only in tenancies, but also in the community, that it's time that we start fighting back against um, the austerity that does be implemented, that cuts all the services and cuts our homes and gives us this precarious um, living and especially with jobs lost, especially with it, with the COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and as an organisation that we um, support each other and we take direct actions against those that um, hold that power against us, it's the only way that we're going to take back what's ours yeah. and to be able to have a, a, a nice life. We believe in empowering and taking action and getting wins that are effective for as many members as possible. Thanks to all three of you for talking to me about this. Um, as I said, there's probably a lot more we can discuss, but I've no doubt that we'll be hearing um, a lot more from Katu in the future. Next up, it's our panel discussion where Patrick McCusker talks to Aurelian Mondon, Gavin Titley and Eugenia Sayapera about where to draw the line, why reporting matters so much when talking about the far right and what we can learn from other countries' experiences. An unfortunate development in recent Irish politics has been the increased visibility of far-right activists who have begun to hold what they claim are anti-mask, anti-lockdown marches and to protest the offices of RTE and the Journal.ie. One such march on September 12th drew a crowd estimated to be as large as 3,000 people and led to an attack on a bystander by participants. Rather than condemn the attack, a number of linked social media accounts revelled in it. One of these went so far as to describe the victim as an anti-Irish lesbian, and stated, we make no apologies, this is war. There are clear links and similarities between these marches and like-minded groups elsewhere. A lot of the rhetoric of these activists draws directly from internet conspiracy theorists such as QAnon, and is rooted in a similar tactic of blaming minorities and spreading misinformation. Indeed, a number of figures who are involved have been shown to be linked to far-right groups elsewhere, such as Britain First and Pegida. However, a lot of mainstream media outlets have downplayed this. RTE reported the march as calling for an end to COVID-19 restrictions, and Today FM hosted a call-in show asking listeners for their feelings on whether masks are necessary. Another show went so far as to invite Dolores Cahill, an Irish Freedom Party activist, to speak in on the mask debate in the interest of balance. Is there a risk that by striving for balance, the mainstream media could inadvertently be giving the far right a space to spread this information. I'm joined here on Nervous State to discuss this by Aurelien Mondon, who is a senior lecturer in politics, languages and international studies at the University of Bath and the co-author of Reactionary Democracy. Gavin Titley, a lecturer in media studies at the University of Maynooth and author of the upcoming Is Free Speech Racist? And Eugenia Siapera, professor of information and communication studies at UCD, and author of Understanding New Media. Thank you very much for joining me. So my first question is for Eugenia. Uh, how has it come to this? How have changes and developments in media made the development of something like 
anti-mask activism possible in recent years? This is a very good question and um, it's not as if I have like a ready answer to this problem that has vexed um, a lot of people but I will um, just offer a few thoughts I have on, on this subject and link this to some research findings that we've um, we have recently. So I think like the main way, um, there's two ways perhaps that we could see this as a problem that um, organized groups are trying to infiltrate the media sphere and this is one dimension and the second and related dimension is that the common sense or what comprises the common sense is itself part of this already so um, just to make it make clear what I'm trying to suggest here is that on the one hand we have organized um, far-right groups that on purpose try to infiltrate uh, the media sphere by using tactics that are known as red peeling, groping, or whatever. So these are like specific tactics they're using in order to um, um, become more visible in the media sphere. And then the second um, aspect of this is that they mobilize a rhetoric that is already very kind of like um, familiar to a lot of us. So for example, anti-maskers are talking about freedom, are talking about liberty, values that we all share in some ways and then of course you have like the tactics which are um, very very dangerous i suppose and should be recognized and called out as such so you have for example a mainstream radio show um, that has uh, an open line to um, listeners and then only the listeners are not everyday citizens or everyday people, but they'd be members of organized groups. And then they would say things like, okay, what about our own? What about this topic? What about that topic? And they'll just try to shift the discussion towards um, uh, the narrative that they, they want to kind of like push forward. So we've seen both of these uh, at work. And I think this, these are some of the ways in which the, the these kinds of perhaps irrational discourses, if you want, um, are becoming more and more part of the mainstream. To what extent does social media become a big part of this? Um, I don't know if we can think of these terms anymore, like, you know, that we have social media as an isolated part and legacy media as a different part. I think they're very much integrated into um, what some would call a hybrid media system or, or a more comprehensive kind of, of media that works in synergy. So for example, in some research we did a few years ago on the, um, the case of Dan, a, a stabbing in Dundalk, um, Gavin will remember this, uh, a very common tactic would be to take an article from RTE that was posted in social media and then in the comments try to spin it, to explain it, to doubt it, um, and to kind of like try to colonize, let's say, that, that space. So I wouldn't say, I think like, you know, I wouldn't blame everything on social media as is the tendency now. You have to see them as working in synergy and, and as integrated structures. But of course, having said this, the algorithms and the, the affordances of, um, of social media um, have been mobilized uh, in order to support some of these ideas. Yeah, I, I think I, I think Eugenia is really, you know, onto something there, which is the need to start to think of this more as a, as an environment where different kinds of things are 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 happening at the same time, and sometimes they look contradictory and complex, but they 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 end up having a particular kind of political political effect. 
So, I mean, I think, you know, if, if we look at this sort of far right resurgence in, in Ireland, you know, we can see a number of things that we need to explain politically and then think about them in kind of media terms as well. So, you know, we, we have groups that are, are really sort of boots on the ground groups. I mean, they're looking to be membership based, mobilized far right groups that have a clear sort of fascist aspect to them. They're attacking political opponents. They're attacking anyone they consider to be a leftist. They're attacking anybody who is LGBT or queer or an activist. And they've increasingly started to attack the media. So the hallmark of, you know, a hallmark of fascism is the attempt to, you know, eradicate or attack your political opponents. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of, of you know, so, so this is the kind of far right acting on the street, and that's what we're seeing, and we need to take this very, very seriously now. And as Benjamin Zephaniah put it a, a couple of years ago, you know, when he was talking about growing up in Birmingham in the 70s and 80s, he didn't really care what the far right were calling themselves that week. You know, they were boots on the street that were out to kick his head in as a black man. And so, you know, there's an element in which we need to, to take the threat on the street seriously as a threat on the street. But there's also complexity to these movements and to understand that sort of complexity of what different kinds of groups are coming together, the ways in which they can cooperate sometimes and sometimes don't cooperate at all are our intentions with each, intention with each other. That's where we also start to need to understand the role of different media platforms and media networks within that also. So I think, you know, as, as Eugenia is saying there, the, the role of social media is that the different platforms allow groups to do different kinds of things at different moments, but it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be successful. But in the case of, for example, Dundalk, the attempt was to sort of use Twitter and the speed of Twitter to hijack the news cycle, whereas Facebook can be used to build up sort of communities and groups that sort of build, share conspiracy theories, share sort of structures of understanding and feeling and try to build some kind of movement from there. But of course, it doesn't always translate out onto the street. But the one which is also worth paying attention to increasingly these days is YouTube, which, as Eugenia said, it isn't that there's just something called social media and mainstream media. And Irish journalism is very bad for constantly explaining the world in terms of there being social media and mainstream media. If you look at something like YouTube, you have a very, very uh, complex, highly well-organized sort of media infrastructure with big channels, big personalities, a lot of money running through it where you have very, very active kind of disinformation and a very active and variegated far-right scene there. So I think we need to be able to do two things to explain the kind of practices that you know, certain actors are up to, but look at what is it in the political moment right now and what is it in the media environment right now that benefits them in, in ways that can, can often be difficult to predict. Yeah, I mean, I obviously totally agree with what both Eugenia and Gavin have said, and I think just to add something to this as well, I think there's, there's a tendency to kind of look at the, at the more kind of fascistic far right, the more kind of extreme far right, which of course needs to be combated on the streets, you know, as soon as it's out. But I think it can also take the, uh, the attention away uh, from, from the kind of more insidious types of racism that's, that's feeding kind of these narratives and that's normalizing these narratives. And that we, and I think we see again that diversion away when we look just at social media, whatever it's, you know, whatever it means, or just, just at kind of the more racist utterances on social media, YouTube, all of these kind of things. And then we forgot, we forget actually about the kind of normalized racism that we see on TV all the time, that we see in the kind of legacy media, the, even the respectful media, or even the way even some of the left-wing media deals with it. And uh, while I'm less kind of familiar with the Irish case, if you look at the, the way The Guardian talks about racism, for example, I think it plays a role in legitimizing certain ideas, for example, even though, of course, as a newspaper, it, is, it sees itself on the left, center-left, and it sees itself as anti-racist, mostly. And nonetheless, with the way it's talking about racism and certain issues, it legitimizes them, mainstreams them, and then makes it easier for kind of a more 
outrageous extreme groups to kind of find ground and find support as well. Um, would you care to tell me more about this? I know it's something you write about quite extensively in the book. Um, why is media coverage so important with regards to this? And what could we perhaps learn in going forward from how the mainstream media has intentionally or unintentionally mainstreamed a lot of positions? Uh, for instance, one you talk about quite extensively in the book is how the French media perhaps inadvertently mainstreamed a lot of uh, far-right positions into mainstream conservative politics in France, culminating in Sarkozy in 2007. Would you care to tell us a little more about that for those of our listeners who might not be as ma much of a massive politics nerd as I am? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, what, <clears throat> what we look at, and we look at uh, in the book with um, Aaron Winter, we look at, uh, at France, the US and the UK in particular, uh, as a case studies. And, and what we argue is that um, the mainstream media, including the kind of liberal slash left-wing media, um, has played a massive part in, in the mainstreaming of far-right ideas and far-right movements in many ways, even though they mostly oppose them, as I said before. Uh, and what we kind of come up with, in a way, is a set of kind of rules or recipes to follow for, for better coverage. And it's, it's not perfect, and it's certainly not exhaustive either. But but what we kind of focus on is really the, the importance of not hyping the far right. The far right for quite a long time now has been quite a kind of sexy topic. Like it's a topic that sells, it's a topic that interests people. Uh, but the problem is that it has led to, to it being hyped. Uh, we saw that in France 20, 30 years ago already, and it's gone on and on and on. The far right has been hyped every time Jean-Marie Le Pen came up with uh, some Holocaust denial comments uh, that would be uh, splashed on, 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 uh, on front pages and that would give him some air. Uh, we've seen that as well, of course, with Nigel Farage, who's been given count, count, countless kind of um, opportunities to, to platform his views, whether it's on BBC Question Time uh, or, or on, on various radios, uh, newspapers, and so on and so forth. And we've seen that uh, in the US uh, as well, where a lot of kind of the mainstream media, including the liberal uh, media, has platformed kind of um, neo-Nazis, neo-fascists, particularly uh, after Charlottesville or, or around Charlottesville and, and the uh, United the Right March. So what we're saying is it's important not to hype these movements. It's important not to exaggerate them as well. It's important to put them back in their context. The other thing that we talk about is we need to be careful not to euphemize the far right um, and racism in particular. And this is something that, for example, The Guardian um, has been guilty of a lot and a lot of other kind of media. I'm talking about The Guardian a lot because I've used it as a case study recently in an article that should be coming out soon. And we look at, at the way The Guardian, in a way, talks about racism. And The Guardian and other liberal media tend to talk about racism when they only talk about the most egregious cases of racism, um, the, the kind of neo-Nazi, uh, fascists, and things like that. But they tend to be far more cautious uh, about the more mainstream racism, the more systemic racism. And they put it in, um, you know, in inverted commas, for example, or, or they call it populist, for or, or other kind of uh, terminologies that are far less stigmatizing and far less precise as well. Racism is very well defined. If you look at you know, a lot of the body of literature and sociology, there are lots of very good precise definitions of racism that apply to a lot of our governments in Western uh, democracies. And finally, we need to be careful not to use, uh, we need to be careful with diversions as well. And the way quite often the far right is used, and that's what I was talking about before, the far right is used to divert us away from systemic racism and, and, and the role of the mainstream plays in uh, entrenching um, inequalities, discriminations, and, uh, and oppression in many ways, but blaming it all on the far right, which is small, dangerous, uh, but small, uh, and it's not the only one responsible for the state of, uh, of racism in our, in our democracy. Okay, so Gavin, he, you were he was talking about yeah. 
teach in relation to this? What exactly do they do? Or what are they appealing to rather? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I can explain that, but I think it's, it's worth starting from a slightly different position just to sort of kind of assemble the logic of, of how free speech works as a particular kind of alibi, let's say, for, for far-right activity. Because I think what, you know, Aurelian is talking about is, is, is important to constantly put far-right movements back into the kind of historical, political, cultural context of the moment. So if you look at, just to give an example again from, 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 from Ireland, given, you know, the context of, of this show, um, before COVID and before the sort of attempt to turn Roderick O'Gorman, for example, into a, a figure, a public hate figure, um, the big wedge issue and what these kind of far-right movements and networks try to do is they try to find wedge issues where they can insert themselves as a kind of a moral force that's representing the people and sort of trick people into thinking that, you know, come and campaign with us. This, this isn't racism at all. This is just common sense. So that big wedge issue in Ireland was, of course, they were going to, to direct provision centers and attempting to sort of hijack the idea of community consultation. Communities haven't been consulted. These centers are just being put here. We're actually kind of on the side of asylum seekers as well because, you know, they shouldn't be dumped in. In a place where they don't know anybody, and yet, of course, what they are doing is create, trying to create facts on the ground, trying to mobilize on the ground in this way. And of course, what allows them to do that is the system of direct provision, which is a inherently racist way of dealing with the question of political asylum and the reality of human movement in this world. So there's a relationship between, on the one hand, the way in which direct provision is organized and the opportunity that it allows for particular kinds of far-right activism that are always looking for spectacle. So they're always looking for something which is newsworthy, which will create conflict, which will draw in attention. And they're also looking for something which is a potential issue of mobilization so that they can normalize themselves to a certain extent in relation to a given issue or being seen to be on the right side of a given issue. Now, think about that in, in, in terms of, of, of freedom of speech. I mean, freedom of speech is obviously a central sort of liberal uh, uh, freedom. It's a, it's a constitutional right and freedom in very many contexts and it's very important we wouldn't be here if we didn't respect it but the precise way in which freedom of speech is understood by the far right is the freedom to articulate whatever they want as forcefully as they want and directed at whoever they want in the public without any meaningful opposition or without any meaningful kind of kickback and in doing that, they're very clear about their objectives. Their objectives are to take up public space. Their objectives are to create spectacles and conflicts that are inherently antagonistic. But by claiming that this is simply a free, this is freedom of expression, what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a strategic alliance with people who see themselves as very, very committed to democratic procedure, very, very committed to sort of fairness and balance, and therefore, we should really hear these people out. They have a right to speak. Now, a lot of the time, their right to speak is not really what's in question. But when you say in relation to ideas, far-right ideas, which are about dehumanization, they're about saying these people don't belong or they're lesser than us. They should be kicked out. They should be treated differently. If you say, well, that's just an opinion and everybody has a right to, to articulate it, but don't take a position yourself against it, then what you are doing is facilitating that politics. You're not actually facilitating a pluralistic public they're specifically facilitating that politics. So what works for the far right constantly is a kind of a, a, a shell game. They're interested in ritual. They're interested in constantly being able to turn up in public, occupy space and attention. But they present it as if they just want to, you know, they just want to have the debate. They just want to explain ideas or 
you know, articulate uncomfortable truths or say what people are thinking, but, you know, are too scared to say. And the problem really with, the, with, with what amplifies that is the ways in which media, because they operate according to different editorial and different sort of philosophical and political logics, they are captured to a certain extent by this kind of far-right shell game. And I think that that's really, you know, over the next while, particularly in Ireland, journalists are going to have to think quite hard about how to represent the public pluralistically, but escape from the shell game that they're being set up to play by the far right. Because at the moment, a lot of people are being played or are allowing themselves with varying degrees of satisfaction. Yeah, it's definitely, it is very troubling. And I think you can see it in other countries how things like giving airtime to the Front National in France or allowing climate change skeptics to run untrammeled on mainstream media has enabled a lot of disinformation to allow it to spread in the public sphere. But the question I would have though going forward, and this goes back to the idea that we don't we shouldn't look at social media and legacy media, if you use that term as being two separate things, but rather as one integrated ecosystem. What would you like to see going forward to be the key elements for journalists and news outlets to provide genuinely fair and balanced coverage of these issues that doesn't result in just platforming racists or anti-mask activists or whoever they choose to describe themselves this week without creating a biased coverage and failing in their role as broadcasters yeah, I mean, there's lots we can talk about here. Maybe I offer one or two things and then turn to, to, to Eugenia in particular and, and Aurelian. I mean, I think part of the problem right now is we also need to, be, to think about the different rationales that different kinds of media and different journalists have. So let's say public service broadcasters like RTE are in a slightly different position from commercial broadcasters. I mean, with some honourable exceptions, m- most commercial broadcasters in Ireland over the last years have found themselves absolutely unable not to platform whatever far-right activist is trying to claim some social media amplified attention that week. And the logic behind that is very, is, is, is very, to some extent, very clear. We live in a so-called attention economy. Everybody is desperately scrambling for ratings. They're desperately scrambling for, you know, an increasingly... Uh, a decreasing slice of, of, of revenue, which is available through sponsorship and advertising and that kind of thing. And of course, what, what, what having somebody on with strong opinions, there's almost a kind of a, you know, a very structural approach to this. It's just somebody with strong opinions. What having somebody on with strong opinions does is generate other strong opinions. And when you think about the ways, you know, when Eugenia talks about the sort of hybrid media system, what, what social media does is constantly generates opinion, more and more discourse, more and more opinion. When, when media uh, actors integrate themselves into that, what they want to do is be part of that opinion generation. So there's a sense in which the kind of sensationalism of, of the far right and the fact that people are going to get very you know, worked up, of course, when they're hearing these kinds of ideas being platformed, that is, is go- that's a commercial logic as far as I'm concerned. Now, the way that you reverse that, um, I think, or the way that you challenge that is to ensure that commercial media pay a price for it. Because one of the ways that they justify this is to say, well, look, our people in the audience think these things, they agree these things, we're just representing what's out there. But what about all of the people listening who, for whom racism in their lives is a very real and continual experience and presence and oppression? They're also part of your public and they're also part of your audience. And they can also turn the dial and they can also decide to subscribe to you and to buy something else. So there's a very sort of uninterrogated kind of 
quite slightly right-wing public that is imagined when we have these discussions about we just need to hear these opinions. You don't need to hear the opinions. You need to analyze what's going on politically, which includes far-right movements, but you don't need to hear those opinions as being somehow naturally part of a spectrum of opinion because every single day journalists decide what the spectrum of opinion is. Every news program has an editorial staff that decide what will be treated, who will speak on it, what they will be able to say, how long it will be given. Editorial decision-making is the infrastructure of broadcasting and of, of editing newspapers. So there's no reason why those very same practices can't be brought to bear on the far right. Uh, Eugenia, have you anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, have to, I don't have very much to add because I think uh, Gavin pretty much covered um, the main dimensions. Um, just to say that um, there is like a ta- it is a tactic on behalf of the far right to target journalists by saying, why are you not covering it? You're using media criticism and it forces mainstream media to respond to this because their self-identity as professionals is that we have to cover everything that is happening. So when they get a tweet, this is happening, why aren't you covering it? They feel compelled to respond to this and therefore they move towards um, covering this on, on top of, of the fact that the far right is a sensational topic that will generate a lot of clicks on the internet and possibly even um, uh, a lot of copies being, being bought. So therefore it, it is newsworthy, it has to be covered uh, by, by journalists. So this is one a point that I wanted to just kind of like um, talk about. And the second is, you spoke about fair, how do we achieve fair and balanced coverage? Well, I want to basically question whether we should go for fair and balanced ca- coverage, because this is a very specific understanding of a function of journalism that is attached to liberal journalism, but it does not cover everything that journalism is or should be about. So for example, uh, journalism in, in earlier years had like a truth-finding mission. And this is, I think, that speaks to, to Gavin's point about, that the job of, about the job of journalists being like to, to offer political analysis rather than see themselves as, as media for all kinds of opinions to be voiced, as platforms for, for opinions to be voiced. So I have to ask, and journalists should ask themselves, what is our role here? What is our job? And this necessarily, I think, requires that they take a side and they have to choose which side they're on. And then the third thing that I'm going to just reiterate upon again uh, that Gavin raised is the question of the silent majority. Most of us listen to the media, um, consume social media, whatever, and we don't have, like, we don't voice um, strong opinions. We just observe. This is the default part of being an audience, being a spectator. Whereas the people who are vocal might have an agenda for this kind of like voice that they're articulating. And then journalists pick up on this and they don't pick up on the silent majority. And this is the kind of like the the platform that the far right finds to say, okay, I represent the silent majority. Well, actually, no, you don't. And we know this from surveys. We know it from other kinds of like broad types of studies that have been um, uh, done across Europe and Ireland, and we also know it on the basis of electoral results. So the the the, the referendum on uh, marriage equality here showed very clearly where the majority stands. And now we have people claiming that they speak on behalf of Ireland, attacking and assaulting LGBT activists. So um, I'm just going to leave it here. Um, I think. Yeah.
made a few points. No, no, definitely. I mean, all of which are very valid and important. And I suppose they indicate why it's so important. Mainstream media outlets take a stand on this. It can't be left to, say, an independent media outlet such as ourselves, who wouldn't, uh, who operates on very different terms. We don't quite have the same. We don't quite have the same demographic uh, situation or demographic reach, sorry, or place in the wider culture to drive the conversation that, say, the Guardian or, or in this country, or T of the Journal that would. I think, I think it is, and I think it's it's very much, I mean, just to echo what, what Gavin and Eugenia were saying, I think it's very much a question of accountability at the end of the day. And I mean, it's it's quite incredible, again, in, uh, in our study with uh, with Katie Brown of a, of a Guardian recently and, and the way they've covered populism and how they've covered populism, the kind of lack of accountability of their editorial cho choices that Gavin was talking about before. The idea that, you know, if they're talking about populism, it's because that's what people want to hear. It's important as well if, if um, the media sees itself as, as playing a role in democracy in many ways, because the media with other things, of course, like, like work, like religion, like, um, like, well, anywhere that kind of we go to, to build our community and our understanding of community mediates our knowledge of the place we live in, the community we live in, and the political community we live in as well. And, and of course, that leads to election and knowledge about election. The media still has a power of shaping the agenda. And I think the problem at the moment is that it doesn't take this power very seriously for various reasons, some of them being, being consumerists, some of them being, being purely ideological, I think, in some of the media that we see and the way the, the, the kind of media elite is, is in cahoot in many ways with the political elite and economic elite. So I think we need, we need broad reforms in many ways that bring back accountability and um, will only allow us to have proper democracy if we do that at the moment. I think I'm, I'm quite um, pessimistic about it all. Yeah. Would you agree or disagree with this, this point, Gavin and Eugenia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I, 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 I do have, I mean, just to, you know, because we, <laughs> the, the, the three of us, you know, know each other quite well and, and we, 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 we work and discuss these things a lot together. So we might, we might sound, you know, to, to some to be slightly echo chamber. So I, I just, I don't want to be contrarian to our own discussion, but I just want to say that I do have some sympathy for, you know, the journalist, some of the journalistic dilemmas that are here which is why I've been trying, I do think there are definitely, I agree there are problems of accountability. I also think there are just particularly in certain sectors of the Irish media, just a constant opportunism, which is just so obvious uh, and so depressing and so juvenile at some level. But I do think that, you know, when you come to sort of media that have, yes, a particular cultural position or a particular mandate like a public service broadcaster, there are difficulties, right? And there are difficulties precisely also because the, the far right, as we've been talking about it, is also quite diverse and quite complex. So there's a slightly different set of issues when it comes to par electoral parties, right? Um, and there are different sets of issues as to how you would, how you have to deal with them during an election period. You know, there's very different kind of broadcasting legislation about that in different countries. And then how you would have to deal with them as a general political actor. And then, of course, you have these kinds of groups that we know because we analyze them are very much embedded in far-right movements, but when they present themselves through something like COVID, are very, very difficult for, you know, um, for individual journalists to turn around and say, okay, this is clearly kind of part of the far-right, because there isn't necessarily any, you know, infrastructure that backs them uh, to make that decision and present the discussion in a different kind of, of way. And that's why very often, the, you know, the, the kind of default position of a lot of journalists is, well, you know, we have to cover this um, because it's happening. The, the, the decision is never 
coverage versus no coverage. It's the, it's the nature of the coverage. And I think that that's something that we need to keep coming back and, and showing that there are different ways of producing good and critical and pluralistic coverage that don't just involve taking people at face value um, and, and inviting them on as political voices of a certain kind in their own right. Okay. Okay. There's a lot to think about there. Thank you all very much for joining me. You're listening to Nervous State on Dublin Digital Radio. Thanks to Patrick, Aurelian, Gavin and Eugenia for that. We cannot be complacent at all about the rising popularity of these movements. Thanks so much to everybody for listening. So next up for our Art Focus segment, Katrina Devery talks to Merv Elverin about the EVA guest programme Little Did They Know and Emer Walsh about their film The Land Question, which links the land wars to sexual freedom today. This episode of Nervous State, I'm talking to two people involved in EVA International. EVA International is Ireland's contemporary art biennial, which has been running in Limerick since 1977. The starting point for this year's EVA is the Golden Vein, a 19th century phrase used to describe the bounty of the rich agricultural land around Limerick, in particular dairy, which was predominantly exported. The Golden Vein reference runs throughout the programme, framing a set of artworks that address our relationship to the land today in terms of identity, ideology and the politics of extraction. Matt Packer has been the director of EVA since 2017. He explained to me that this year EVA is slightly different. It normally runs for a couple of months in autumn every second year, but this time around, in order to adapt to COVID-19, the programme will run in three phases, over an extended period from September 2020 to December 2021. As always, there's a guest curator, this time it's Merva Elverin, but there are some new strands in the programme, including four platform commissions, which are new works by artists based in Ireland, and partnership projects, which have been developed in collaboration with other institutions. So first I'll speak to guest curator Merva Elverin about her guest programme, which is called, aptly enough for 2020, Little Did They Know. Then I'll talk to Emer Walsh, one of the platform commissioned artists, about their video, The Land Question, which in case you're anticipating a purely Parnell and David related history lesson, is subtitled, Where the Fuck Am I Supposed to Have Sex? But first, the guest programme. Merva Elverin was in Istanbul when we spoke over Zoom. I asked her about the phrase she's used as a title for her programme, Little Did They Know. It doesn't come from any specific book or any other, and it doesn't have a reference, but it's a, it's a sentence, it's a phrase that we use for unexpected events, either in good, in some of them, as good outcomes and some of them devastating outcomes. So it was more like for me to, to, to define the moments that we live in today. This first phase of Little Did They Know seeks to connect the land to questions of political, economic and social transformations, both historically and in the present. We do have quite a lot of historical um, archival works in the, in the project, so um, it also it refers, references those, uh, those projects as well. So the, it, the whole project, the guest programme, departs from the golden vein, of course. But then it aims to build a map of different strategies of collective action, some of them formal, some of them informal, and gestures of survival. And to rethink, it's an attempt to rethink about these moments in today's conditions. There are projects here from all around the world. How did you connect back the artworks that you chose to the original Golden Vein reference? Of course, it started from Golden Vein, but it's, um, I was also quite certain from quite early on that it's not necessarily and only about Golden Vein but how can we look at the land and what a land actually means today? The idea was not to actually do any kind of schematic show. Um, mm-hmm. This, is, this is, has been very, very important because the, the, even the work, for example, Dirian Zeneri's work, the chromium 
complex and the steel complex, two different works, uh, video installations by Driant. They don't only look at the chromium uh, or the steel production in Albania. It also looks at the, the fall of the Labour Party in Albania. It also looks at uh, how women and children are used in these complexes uh, since the 1990s. Um, same goes with Michelle Horgan's work, where it specifically looks at aluminium, but also how women is placed in aluminium's history as well. So they're all, um, they all form a little, quite thin thread between each other. This year, Eva supported four platform commissions, which were awarded to Laura Fitzgerald, Anya McBride, Emily McFarland, and Emer Watch, who we'll talk to today. Emer's video, The Land Question, gets to grips with the history of the land wars and what that might mean for housing, politics, and personal and sexual freedoms today. Here's how it starts. So many times I've been asked the question, what three conditions would need to be met in order for me to feel comfortable having sex exclusively outdoors. And I always say the same thing. Number one, decriminalization. Number two, good faith. And number three, viable logistics. Let me take you through it in a little bit more detail. So first off, I asked Emer how they approached the thread running through the EVA programme, the Golden Vein. For me, I suppose the, the, the combination of a kind of poetic descriptor that, that has to do with an external gaze on Ireland and the Irish landscape in general, also referring to a, a kind of economic valuation of land based on what can be extracted from it is, the, is very much kind of the starting point of interest for, for me. Tell us a little bit about some of your work to date that kind of feeds into where you started with this particular video. Well, I had just finished in 2018 doing this uh, kind of course uh, between the Van Abba Museum in Eindhoven and the Design Academy, also in Eindhoven, which was looking at, I suppose, the relationship between design and architecture and how they have played such an important role in sexuality the people who design internal domestic spaces have like a huge kind of responsibility, whether they realize it or not, for creating scripts for sexuality. And then, so I suppose the kind of unofficial starting point was when I was in my early 20s, uh, I'd had a little bit of housing precarity brought on by, what's the polite way of putting this? (laughs) I suppose like uh, strong adverse reactions to my sexuality. So, uh, in terms of house, housemates or landlords, in terms of housemates, yeah. Mm. But basically, yeah, when I was when I was in my early twenties, I was so desperate to live with um, people who were accepting of me in that regard that I actually made an offer to a landlord when I finally found a place that suited us all of a higher rent than they were asking for. Wow, in Dublin. Like, in Dublin, I negotiated my rent upwards. Wow. And obviously there's a lot going on there, right? And I still haven't personally come to terms with my own scabbing in this regard, right? But there's more to it than that as well, right? There's it's comp- of- that's very complicated if, if there's issues of, of inclusion and, and, you know, acceptance of difference. Right, it's but not- there's, a per- there's a personal and a collective culpability there, right? And like... I suppose that's that's what's really interesting to me is like the ways that the ways that your vulnerabilities can make you, for want of a better word, a traitor. 
So from those kind of intellectual and personal starting points, what did you end up producing for this phase one of Eva? So it's a single channel video installation that is installed in Limerick, but also available online, which takes the format of an artist talk to camera uh, from my parents' back garden, um, uh, which kind of narrates this, this history on a sort of national and personal level, thinking about um, land and sexual politics from the level of the body to the level of the state and, and in between and the level of domestic and taking into account specifically the colonial history of Ireland. I worked with the Department of Energy and Ian Lynch on the soundtrack. In the video you opened by asking which three conditions would have to be met for you to consider having sex exclusively outside so kind of relating back to the land wars with, with those where you're making up your own personal three Fs. Um, and although it, it's kind of funny, it's a little bit flippant, you're actually talking about much bigger issues of personal freedom, privacy, um, the relationship of those things to economic ideologies and, and public morality. I think the conditions that many people socially or emotionally require for having sex comfortably and privately are the same conditions that you need to like cry or confide a secret or just have a minute of being like quiet and alone with yourself you know yeah. and those things are actually fundamental needs outside of economics it comes around to more fundamental things like what's a house for you know what's a bedroom for and is it like the the motivation for like having quiet sex in your shared accommodation is so that your housemates and yourself can get a good night's sleep because you're up early tomorrow because you got to make money for your boss and your landlord. So let's bring it back a little bit, back from this kind of personal, sexual, domestic, and, and listen to a little bit of a history lesson from Emer's video. The other conflicting policy was the continued project of redistributing the land into smaller farms for growing crops. Uh, which would provide economic self-sufficiency and employment for many rural families. This would require up to two million acres of land to be bought up and redistributed to those in need, a policy that Cumann na Gael called... The purest of communism. <laughs> of course they did. If anything, it was the purest of cronyism. The Land Commission's purchasing and distribution, while it did improve livelihoods and create upward mobility for huge amounts of people, was meant to prioritise farmers in congested districts, landless labourers and people whose farms were too small to support their families. However, in practice, the process was subject to local petitioning, neighbours sabotaging each other and accusing each other of scandals to undermine their claims for land, that clip kind of made me think, is it always the same kinds of people who end up, if not rising to the top, then kind of elbowing their way to the top? Because the movement was there to redistribute land and to help people move out of poverty and to be self-sufficient. But in the end, the same kinds of people ended up benefiting what many people left behind and that legacy continues to this day. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the kind of, this is what links, I think, um, my anecdote about offering more rent to, to all the way back to the um, the neighbours kind of scabbing on each other to be able to expand their land and their freedom. What did you learn about land as an agricultural resource? Um, you mentioned the potato at one point in the video. 
when you extract um, land ownership from the land, then the really only thing that's pragmatically left to talk about is the land as a producer. The potato in Ireland, I think also is an interesting sort of um, uh, slightly kind of discriminatory notion that the potato was um, uh, grown by a sort of less morally upstanding kind of person because it required less labour than other kinds of crops. Mm. So I think that there was an additional um, association there that of course... Of kind of laziness, was it? Or yeah, kind of, yeah, absolutely. Um, but then, yeah, I do think that there is an intergenerational psychic toll that comes with uh, you having this kind of extractive relationship with um, just internationally generally but I think exporting being like think yeah producing for export yeah um, and rather for not for your own self-sufficiency which is as true of the people as of the crops hmm. so after looking back at the whole history of the land question radical history of agrarian uh, activism in Ireland what kind of things did you think were relevant for the housing movement today? The corner that I argue myself into is that reform models of creating greater housing and land occupation equality don't actually work. And like, and, and the like model of private property, it means that there's always going to be somebody who's priced out or regulated out or fucked out because they've just stepped outside of the pale of whatever is sort of, whatever parameters are set up. So thanks to Emer and to Merv, and if you want to see Emer's video, you can find it on the EVA website, or you can go down to Limerick and check out the whole exhibition. And I'll leave you with some gorgeous music from The Land Question by Ian Lynch. Thanks for listening to Nervous State. Hope you enjoyed it. You can hit us up on Twitter. Our handle is at Nervous underscore state. Sound on this episode was mixed by Jane DC. Thanks to Sian Cowman, Ellie Phelan, Katrina Devery, Ashton Micklethwaite, Patrick McCusker, Tommy Gavin, Sean Finnan, Dara Deegan-Gregory, Lucas Spiro and Martin Lee.